Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the comic and TV writer, Kelly Sue DeConnick. Kelly Sue, welcome to the show. Hey, buddy. So, first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. I am a comic book and television writer, as you say. And um, probably, if you don't know my work at all, the only thing that I have, well, not the only thing, but the thing you're most likely to know would be Captain Marvel. Um, So I wrote the run on the comic book Captain Marvel that the film was based on and uh, worked on the film. And uh, yeah, and that will be the first line in my obituary. And that's okay. (laughs) I'm fine with that. Um, and uh, other than that, I currently write Aquaman for DC Comics. I have written Avengers Assemble for uh, Marvel Comics as well as Captain Marvel and some other things. And um, I have a couple of creator-owned books called uh, Bitch Planet and Pretty Deadly. Um, and, uh, I developed television for legendary studios. So can you talk about what you've, cause you mentioned obviously specific titles of the comics. Can you talk about what you've done in TV or what you are doing? Are you, are you allowed to talk about that? Not much, unfortunately. Um, you know, until it makes it to air, everything is all behind the scenes in NDA. And, uh, you know, I've written an episode of this or that. Uh, I had an episode of um, Emerald City on NBC, which was the sort of, I, I had a blast working on it, but but uh, uh, it, it was a, a kind of dark take on The Wizard of Oz, which is in itself kind of problematic. <laughs> um as far as like being true to the DNA of the material, but okay, that was above my pay grade. Well, wel- welcome to Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much. I, I got to write for Vincent D'Onofrio though, which was uh, an incredible pleasure. Um, and uh, and that's where I met Sean Cassidy, who I want went on to develop another pilot with that never made it to air. Um, but uh, Sean is a great friend now, and I learned a great deal from him. Um, and David Schulner, who is a delight, a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, so yeah, it's most of my television work has been very much behind the scenes. Uh, maybe someday, <laughs> supposedly, theoretically, someday. But for people who don't know uh, Hollywood, you know, movies and TV and how they work, that's that might be surprising. But of course, you and I know that that's entirely normal. Oh, it's the bulk. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I know people who've somehow made careers in Hollywood developing uh, uh, films and uh, television and have, you know, like a, a small handful of things that have ever actually made it to air or nothing at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not unusual for, uh, you know, I can think of several, I won't name names, but I can think of several screenwriters who basically had one produced picture 15 years ago. And ever since have have been making a steady living. They're always working, but they're never mm-hmm. credited, and their 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 full screenplays, their own screenplays, never get made. And they just, you know, do punch ups and weeklies and what have you on other people's pictures. It's uh, you know, it's a living. But what I was going to say about that was, it's I, I think in a way that's instructive because it's all about the experience when you're doing that kind of work. 
like you said that you know you may laugh at the concept of uh, emerald city or whatever but you had a blast working on it and i think there are some situations where that's what you have to take from the work you have to think well okay this may not be the greatest work that i've ever done but i'm enjoying doing it and at least i can apply some craft to it and do the best job within the constraints that i'm being presented with yeah i mean it's it's yeah i, I mean that was kind of one of the joys of comics even even working in the model that you and i work in which is um a collaborative model where you're working with another artist you have so much more input and so much more control than in television or film, but I, I mean, it, it comes down to money, right? Like it's a, uh, you know, that pilot that I made that never saw air costs something like eight or $10 million to make. Um, and it never went anywhere. <laughs> like it's amazing. And that's not unusual. Yeah. No, no, not unusual at all. Um, and so, you know, when you think about it, it, it costs, I mean, the, the budgets vary wildly, but it costs somewhere between like $2,500 and $1,500 to make an issue of most comics, right? Uh, or $15,000. I'm sorry, not $1,500. Yeah. Um, uh, like $2,500 to $15,000, which is a huge range, I, I understand, but it's... But compared to a TV or film budget, it's... It, it's nothing. It's nothing. I mean, that's craft services for like a day. Right, exactly. And um, and so because there's less money involved, it can be riskier. And because it can be riskier, there don't have to be as many people weighing in and checking everything in the world. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to put it where you don't... You don't want to sound like a... 14 year old like you know <laughs> man my my creative impulses are being checked by the suits man you know and and like no but that does happen i mean you know oh it, it is, completely happens it is a reality it's yeah people who are you know reading 15 scripts in a night are giving notes on all this stuff they don't read as carefully as the thing that you've been working on for you know and and like they give you a note and you're like all right i gotta do this even though you actually just misread that, you know, I mean, you can go back and push back, but nine times out of 10, that's pointless. Um, I've come across that so many times where somebody's misread something. And as soon as you try to explain, you realize this is a losing battle. Like, it's a losing yeah, battle. Yeah. And then, and the argument is going to be that like, well, no one's going to be as cl deeply involved in it as you are. And like, yes, but they're going to see it in moving pictures, not text, yeah. you know? Um, anyway, it just, it just becomes like, all right, make it different, you know? Um, and, and also you, you know, when there's $10 million on the line, you can't really blame them for being a little jumpy. Right. No. So, but that's what exactly. I love about it. Instead of making it what I don't like about film and television, let's make it what I do love about comics, which what I do love about comics is because we're cheap and fast and disposable. We are risk takers. We are R&D for film and television because we can go out there and try crazy things. That's sort of in our DNA. That's what we do. And I enjoy that. I come from theater, I have a theater background. I, and um, specifically, I come from experimental theater and environmental theater. And so 
wanting to try things and shake things up and do new things is very much in my um, artistic DNA. I don't know how else to put that in. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's a way to say that that sounds less pretentious, but oh my God, it's a <laughs> podcast for writers. Hi, we're pretentious. Let's just go with that. Yeah. I mean, it's like that old, there's an old line and I cannot remember who first said it, but there is an old line that, you know, there is no budget in comics. And obviously yeah. that's, you know, for, on a practical level, that's not true, but on a conceptual level, there is no budget. You can literally blow up the universe and it costs the same amount you know, of time takes yeah. the same amount of time for an artist to draw as it does. In fact, it probably takes less time than it does for them to draw five pages of somebody talking. Yeah. You know? Four guys on a horse costs about the same to draw as 25 guys on a horse, you know, exactly. but if you're casting that and setting up the logistics of that shoot, that's a big difference. Oh yeah. Yeah. And people wonder why nobody makes Westerns anymore. Or not on a horse. If you're going to put 25 guys on one horse, that would be really weird. So I kind of misspoke <laughs> there, but you understood what I meant. Yeah. So, okay, well, let's go into, uh, and I don't want to restrict the conversation entirely just to the comics, but there is, I mean, obviously when you're doing TV stuff, I know you, you don't live in LA, so you, you sort of commute back and forth a little, but when you're down in LA, you know, if you're in a room or you're on set, you know, that's the same, your, your time isn't your own, your schedule isn't your own to a large extent anyway. And that's the same for every writer who's in that position. So, but when you're at home, when you're, you know, screenwriting at home or when you're doing your comics work at home and you're in charge of your own schedule, but you also of course have a family. Um, and I know that you have two children, you know, that you've raised while you've been a writer. So Mm -hmm. what is your, I'm sure it's changed over the years, but right now, what's your typical writing day like? What's your typical routine? <sighs> Boy, it's a mess right now. Do you honestly. have one? <laughs> I mean, I do, <laughs> yes, but it's it's really more like, you know, what's on fire. But um, uh, I, I can, t- uh, so I'll tell you what it is right now, and then I'll tell you what it, what my favorite was and why I had to stop doing that. Sure. Um, so right now, I supposedly get up at 5.15. I don't. I have not gotten up at 5.15 since the winter break. I keep setting my alarm for 5.15 and it keeps not happening. Um, Instead, I get up at 6.15 in reality, but the plan is 5.15. That's important. The plan is 5.15 so that I get up and do some journaling first thing. Um. That's not happened of late, so I've had to sneak it in later in the day where I don't find it to be as an effect as uh, as effective of a tool. So this is just to break there for a second. So you're talking about bullet journaling, I hear, aren't you? Where you effectively do- make your to do list for the day? Uh, no, I'm actually talking about traditional journaling. Oh, I see. My mistake. Um. So I I. Which I've recently separated into two books. For a long time, I was also really adamant that I kept one book for everything, um, notebook. Um, but I now I have separated now, and I have a journal, journal, and a bullet journal. Um, I think ideally having one book for everything is best, but. Um, but the problem is I'm uh, uh, prissy about paper and uh, paperweight and bleed. 
And so because of that, I don't like moleskins or loop therms. I uh, use a, a, a limoam or a um, archer and olive, which are ridiculously expensive, but they're my favorites. Um, <laughs> so I treat myself to those uh, every once in a while. But um, limoam is actually less expensive than moleskin or loop therm, and it is a, a nice paperweight. But because of the paperweight, fewer pages, uh, which means I tear through them too quickly if I'm using them for absolutely everything right. to the point where it becomes a little bit annoying. So, um, so I've separated out journaling, journaling and, um, and bullet journaling into two different books. It's still, it's not crazy pants. It's not like at one point in my life, I had like a different notebook for every project I was working on. And then it was like, this is stupid. I've never understood people who do that. I don't, I don't get it because like, what if you have a new idea that may not turn into a project? Do you just like, use five pages of a notebook and then throw it away. I just, I don't get it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I think, I think it, it appeals to your, like, I, it appealed to my like sorting, you know, and kind of also, I like, I like for my tools to be a little totemic, you know? So I would have like, mm. I had a butterfly notebook for pretty deadly and you know, all this stuff. And so it was just I'd, like, I get it, but it became, Oh no, I don't have that book on me right now. And, Right. Once you're working on more than two or three different projects, yeah, a, it just that's a pain. Became really silly, um, but yeah. Okay, so, so going sorry, back, resume to your with your day. Yeah, yeah. So I um, ideally I get up in the morning and do my journaling first. Don't haven't done that of late, but ideally that's how that works. Um, then uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and thirty Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday, thirty Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, I meet my trainer at the gym at six 30. Um, and I work out for about 45 minutes and then I come home and help get the kids off to school. Um, Matt, uh, my husband actually drives them in. Um, and my mother-in-law lives with us and she gets started on getting them fed while I'm at the gym. And, uh, and then we get lunches packed and them out the door. And then I sit down at my desk. Um, and if I have done my day breakdown in my bullet journal the day before, which ideally I have, um, then I can kind of launch into what I need to take care of for the day. I have a tendency to start by going through my email and checking Slack channels. I think this is a bad policy, <laughs> um, but I, it's a habit I haven't been able to break. Yeah, I, I'm famously an advocate of doing it the other way around, of doing your writing first and then yeah. doing email and social media afterwards when you, after you know that you've got your day's work done. But you have to do whatever works for you. And well, it doesn't work for me. It's my, <laughs> it's, it's not, I don't think it's good. Um, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely well, right. But on the other hand, you are very prolific and successful. So it clearly is working yeah. on some level. Yeah. I think, it, I think, I think it works better um, to hold it off until breaks, but I usually go through everything once in the morning, just kind of check things. Um, I've gotten much better about 
social media after taking a couple of um, month long breaks from it. I'm I supposedly on a month long break from it right now. I started on the sixth and kind of taken a a time out, but I have not. Um, I, I started it knowing I would be back on Twitter for the day yesterday throughout the day because uh, I had the a, an important issue of a comic coming out for me and yeah. I wanted to make sure I was reminding everyone every <laughs> like four or five minutes. Um, and this is this is the problem with the the purists or not the purists the uh, the holier than thou uh you know life coaches and what have you go on about doing social media purges and uh you know absolutely 100% stay off social media for a set period of time. and I'm like freelancers can't do that social media has become a really important part of our mm-hmm. pr and reaching out to our readers and maintaining a relationship with our readers uh that's just yeah. that's really difficult for us to do do you schedule your tweets Rather than using something where tweets are pre-entered and then they get posted on a schedule, um, instead I will tend to schedule my work throughout the day in 90-minute bursts with a half an hour to kind of relax, check in on emails and social media. Oh, I see. Right. So, you do, so you're doing 90-minute sprints and then your your break is part of going on Twitter, Tumblr, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Because um, I do find that to be fun. Um, mostly, with a Most caveat. Of the time. <laughs> yeah. So you check your email and your social media. Right. And, and then presumably after that, I assume you take a break and then get get to work on writing stuff. And then um, and then I try to work in 90-minute sprints. Um, and, you know, I'm on this weird food thing to where I have to eat like every two hours. <laughs> and so it's like, <laughs> um, so you do that until the kids come home, presumably. Yeah, pretty much. Um, my, so it's like, I work for an hour and a half, then I take a half hour break. Um, which usually involves eating something, checking the mail, posting things to Twitter, looking at Slack channels. Um, and then, uh, deciding what the next 90 minute thing is, if I haven't already pre planned it. Um, so there's an interesting question. Do you, so let's say it sounds like you probably have maybe three or four of these 90 minute periods. Yeah. Depending on the day day to work in. Yeah. Um, do you work on the same thing in all three or do you sometimes work on two or three even different things? Ideally, one thing I find I have a cost I pay for changing canvases. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but often I don't have a choice, you know. Um, yeah. uh, I know that one. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's like, well, you have to get these pages in, but you also need to do a lettering pass on this book, but you also need to get some information to your editor so they can write solicits for this book. And, you know, it's just, it is what it is. Yeah. I had a period uh, last year where I had to, I, I simply had to get a manuscript finished at the same time as I was writing a video game. And so oh. my mornings were spent writing the video game until about sort of one thirty two in the afternoon. Uh, and then, yeah, I would get something to eat to make a kind of hard break, as it were, between the two. 
and then yeah. come back and write the uh, manuscript for a, a few hours, you know, what I had left of the afternoon. And I did that for the best part of three months. Drove me nuts. <laughs> I have been talking about writing a novel for about 10 years and, uh, and I have not actually written a novel. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but I have not done, I have not done that. So, um, you've been kind of busy. Yeah. But I was like, well, I'm not the, you know, Matt and my husband, and I have this, uh, every six months we get together and, you know, go through goals and project lists together. And we, we, weekly we go through project lists and updates, but every six months we do a kind of big talk about it. And, um, cause we are nerds. Um, but any, but literally we've been doing this as long as we've been together and I have been, you know, we have, we'll have a five and 10 year goal thing where we'll sort of stick pins and stuff. And, um, and how long has write a novel been in there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, like probably since the beginning, which would be like 17 years now. Uh, Good Lord. yeah, I know. Um, and so at this point it's like, okay, well, you know, it's, it's in 17 years, somehow it's moved from the 10 year list to the five year list. But it was like, that's not kind of how that's supposed to, that's not how math works, kid. Um, <laughs> On the other hand, it is progress. Yeah, it is progress. <laughs> I suppose. Um, but so this year, like I, I had an opportunity to, to take a bigger role in a comic thing recently. I was entertaining it and uh, I was talking to Matt about it. And he was like, or you could write your book. I was like, oh, <laughs> you monster. So, um, I'd like to have my, I'd like to have my first sentence or at least the first sentence, whether or not this is the first sentence of the book, the first sentence I'm going to write decided before I sit down to begin my book. So I will need to figure out if one of these 90 minute, um, parts of my day, uh, or which 90 minute part of my day gets given over to the book. My my inclination is to, yes, my inclination is to pay myself first. Um, which would mean doing that first thing. I would say so. I would recommend so just because um, of all the different, of all the things I've done, writing novels is the most concentration intensive. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into arguments with people about which is more difficult to do, you know, what's more difficult to write or whatever, but writing novels absolutely takes the most intense concentration of anything that I write. So how have your, I mean, you said that this is, you know, this is what you do now. How have your Mm -hmm. habits changed over the years? Cause you said there was a kind of ideal period that, that you wish you could go back to, but clearly you can't. The best schedule I ever kept. I got up at three in the morning and I went to bed at eight at night. That's insane. It was so great. I loved it so much. Um, I didn't use an alarm clock. It was just natural. Um, nuts. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. 3 a.m. is not natural. I, apparently it is for me. I don't know what stock I come from. A uh, bunch of weirdos, clearly. But um, I, I, yeah, I can't, I can't explain it, but I would lay down with the kids um, and I would often fall asleep before them. <laughs> but, <laughs> Mind you, that's not unusual for new mothers. 
No, no. And I, so I was out about eight o'clock and I would wake up about three and uh, I would go get a cup of coffee and I would read for 15 minutes and then I would start writing. And I didn't worry about checking email or news or anything. Just, you know, I think I was only doing two or three books at the time. So it wasn't that even hard to figure out like what needed to be worked on. I, what This was before television. Um, and I would work um, from three until the kids got up. Um, my kids are early risers too. So, well, my son is, my daughter is not. My, my daughter is nine years old now and wakes up like she's in a nicotine fit. It's the funniest <laughs> thing. She's like a monster in the morning. Um, but she, uh, or, but they, they, he usually gets up around six in the morning, but I, so would get up in the, in the writing that I would get done in those three hours or so. I got more done in that amount of time than I do in my whole day now. So, right. Okay. So here's the interesting thing. So I, I, a bit of a cheat. I actually knew that about you and I know that that was how you, you know, did it when the kids were young. And the thing is what you have there, albeit time shifted by about five hours earlier than than I personally would do it is basically what I advocate now, what I always advocate mm-hmm. now, which is get up and immediately start writing. Like, you know, I'm yeah. brush your teeth and stuff, obviously, but you know, don't, uh, don't check your email. Don't check Twitter. Just do whatever you have to do. You know, have a wash, have a shower, take the dog out for a walk, anything like that. But then sit down and write before the outside world can pollute your mind. Because that's the thing about getting up at 3 a.m. is nobody else is up at that time. So nobody can disturb you. No, it, it was great. And, and you know, I, I think my, I always make the joke that like my inner editor sleeps in too. So there was a, <laughs> you know, I felt less critical of my work. Um, and like, I felt like the morning was my time to get things down on paper and the afternoon after everybody got off to school was my time to deal with editorial administrative decision making i could be critical of my work in the afternoons yeah no that that is exactly what i advocate now yeah, yeah. so well let's talk about revision a bit then yeah so uh, you know and you're in your editor and stuff how do you revise do you make notes as you write or do you wait do you have a first draft done and then go through everything in one go well, it depends on what we're talking about. Um, I tend to be, I don't write much prose, so I don't, we'll have, we'll have to check in next year. We'll, and, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. and I can answer that question from that perspective, but, um, uh, uh, I am, I am a banger, not a swooper, you know, that. Ooh, I have no idea what those terms mean. Okay. So so I don't know. I think if you Google it, you can probably find, this was a thing for a while. People were talked about writers in terms of bangers and swoopers and swoopers would come in and lay everything down kind of fast and then do the work of rewriting when there was something to work with. And bangers would kind of wrestle it out word by word. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm a swooper then. Yeah, I think swooping sounds like a more pleasant way to live. Um, <laughs> Tell that to my adult brain. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not a natural at it though. I will tend to like wrestle and fight with 
things that it's unnecessary for me to wrestle and fight with at that stage. Um, so you're more of a banger. Do you re- do you like craft every line before you move on to the next one rather than just get it all down and then go back and do it again? I tend to, yeah. Um, so like Matt says, my first draft is really more like my third draft um, because of the rewriting that I do as I go. Before you actually reach the end of it, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And is that the same for comics and TV? Um, yes, but in, I mean, that's just kind of how I write. I'd love to learn to write differently, but that is just sort of. I'm not sure you can. I think what you, you you reach a stage where your process is your process and you can make tweaks to it and stuff. But once you've been doing this, you know, as long as you and I both have, I think it's very difficult to change that process without having a complete scorched earth process to you know itself to go through yeah it it just seems it seems smarter to well but how much do you know before you start like are you a are you a big outliner or do you just know kind of by the seat of your pants um n- not quite either um i wish i was a better outliner i'm terrible at it because i have to discover so much in the writing so what i tend to i i tend to know what my ending is um and a rough flow but then i will discover things in the writing and things go off the rails uh almost never the does the ending change though um right. i, I kind of so you've it, got your it, end point in mind like yeah i know where i'm going um but i i often change how i'm getting there uh dramatically um also like i think i know what i'm writing about i think i know like what i'm sort of exploring thematically and i'm always wrong i was just gonna say and then you get to the end and you realize yeah you're actually you were writing about something else totally (laughs) happens to me every project yeah but i'm at this point in um in my life where i have i have so many uh, so many projects and, and I worry that the speed at which I have to work is affecting the quality of the work that I'm doing. And it really bothers me. Mm. Uh, and I don't know what to do about that. I mean, obviously the thing to do about that is to do less, but you know, you have economic. That's not always practical to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only thing you can do there is follow your instincts. I, I'm a mm-hmm. big believer in, you know, we know, we know, we can put on a public face, you know, we can uh, say nice things in public and stand there and smile and chat about our work and what have you. But deep down, we know if something is wrong or it's not working or frankly, we could have done better, but we just didn't have the time. You yeah. Know, we, I mean, sometimes we may not even admit it to ourselves, but I think deep down, we always know uh because nobody knows our work like we do so i think in those situations all you can do is yeah let your instincts guide you really yeah and you know it's it's become i am 49 years old and you know only young people believe age is just a number you know (laughs) um like oh that's cute that's sweet that you think that um 
but I've got aching bones and uh, muscles and what have you that say, and, and energy levels, frankly, that say otherwise. Yes, that is exactly true. And, and I eat very well and I work out five days a week and I like, you know, like I'm, I am doing my part guys. It's just age is what it is. Um, and I want to be able to spend time with my children. That's a choice that I've made. Um, and, um, I want to make good work, but I also, you know, we have, we have a limited time in this world and I have to choose my projects carefully because you know, there is, there is a finite number of books you have left in you. You just don't know what that number is. And as dark as that sounds, you know, it's a thing to think about that, like, if I am doing this work, not just to pay my bills, but which, I mean, is a fine reason to do your work, but also because I like to think that art serves a purpose in the world and I am trying to understand things better. I am trying to put questions into the world that will affect people in some way and, um, and make something that matters. It can matter in a small way, but I'm trying to make something that matters. And, uh, if that is the case, then it is important as my time starts to pass faster and faster that I am careful about what I am choosing to make. Um, you know, and if I've learned my craft better than in by practice, then now is the time to really be choosy about what are the questions I'm putting into the world? What are the projects I'm putting into the world? Yeah. I, I had exactly that same train of thought uh you know fairly recently actually uh you know in the grand scheme of things um and yeah you know i had a sort of bit of a health scare i'm fine but it was one of those things that really made me think oh how many books have i got left in me like how many projects do i actually have left that i can put out there in the world and it really does (laughs) as you say as dark as this is a subject to talk about it really does focus the mind it's real you know um it's real and you can pretend like you have infinite time, but that's I don't know, it's a lot easier to do at 20 than it is at 50. Oh yeah. So right, let's get off that and back to the actual work then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who reads your stuff? Do you have beta readers? Does Matt read all of your scripts or do you work in solitary or, or what? No. Um, our schedules are not such that we have that possibility. Um, I, you know, I wish, uh, we have, we do have, uh, assistance. So I do, and, and, and I do process things verbally. So I will frequently, and we have the, you know, the, the talk to the duck thing, uh-huh. um, which for folks who aren't familiar, it's, uh, I learned this from Dan Curtis Johnson, who is a, a friend of both uh, Anthony's and mine, and um, uh, a fantastic writer, but um, he's mostly made his his work in software engineering. He told me this story. I thought it was sort of specifically a him story, but it turns out like it may be one of those. Oh, things. Oh no, it's that, fairly universal. Yeah, like yeah. everybody's 
aunt knows somebody that was in an elevator with, you know what I mean? Like, like it's, Oh, this is apocryphal. But, um, so the way I heard it was it was the software engineer who oversaw a bunch of other engineers and, uh, the guy kept being interrupted by people who were under him, who would come in to ask him a question. And then they would figure out the answer to their own question in the asking and be like, never mind. Um, and so he instituted this policy because it kept derailing him. So he instituted this policy. He was a, a hunter and he had a um, decoy duck that sat uh, in the vestibule outside of his office. And before you could interrupt him to ask a question, you had to ask your question to the duck. You had to talk to the duck first. And in, apparently it cut down on the times he got interrupted because in people trying to articulate what the question was, they would often figure out what the answer was. Um, and so my husband and I are both writers and, and we both work in the same industries. And, uh, and so we will frequently ask one another, you know, just be my duck for a minute. Um, so (laughs) just sit there and let me try to, articulate out loud what the problem is. And I will probably come up with my own answer. Um, yeah. All you have to do is listen like the robot. Yeah. Dog. I just, I need a, a human being sitting there. So I have to say it out loud because I feel silly talking to an actual duck. Um, <laughs> and then obviously, you know, depending on the project I have editors. Um, it's something that I find really interesting having moved, you know, sort of between media because in comics I had, no readers like mm-hmm. i mean i had no readers but I, but i also had no beta readers i it wasn't a thing you know i'm very much and i know you, you know you and i obviously both know uh warren ellis quite well and his mantra of you know you lock yourself in the room alone and bash away at the keyboard until it's done and that's mm-hmm. how you write uh and i do believe in that but when i started writing novels uh, you know, more than just one here and there, but thought like, okay, I'm going to be doing this, you know, consistently for a while. I gathered a group of beta readers to read my rough drafts and I've actually found them invaluable. I don't think I would have found them useful in comics because the, especially serialized comics, the unit of work is so relatively small that I think it's not quite so valuable until, as you say, it goes to an editor. Um, but for a novel, I found them invaluable. And you're also like, you're on such a quick turnaround schedule, um, for monthly comics. Also true. Yeah. Yeah. That it's like, okay, so I have to give this to you. Now I have to wait until it's convenient for you to read it. And, you know, and like, nope, I don't have time for that. I got to. Well, and everybody in comics is overworked as well. So, uh, but yeah, like, as I say, I've, I've, you know, I'm going to try to do a novel this year. So we'll, uh, We'll see. I'd be very interested in having um, someone uh, or some some ones. Um, but that it, it also scares me. It also really scares me. And also, oh, it is scary. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually find that sending the rough draft out to my beta readers for me is actually scarier. That's the scariest part of the process. That is more scary than sending it to my agent and sending it to my editor because by the time it gets to my agent and my editor and beyond, it's already been through the beta reading stage. So I've already right. made all my mistakes. I've already, you know, pratfalled a dozen times uh, in front of my beta readers. And I do it in front of them so that I don't have to do it in front of people like my agent or my editor. So that initial beta reading, yeah, is it is terrifying. 
but that's part of the process and that's why you have to trust you really have to trust your beta readers and trust that they know you know what they're reading and that it's in progress and and blah 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 you know it, it's all about trust yeah yeah though it's uh i suppose that's a part going to be a part of my life but uh it is very scary it's scary it's also scary to like let people in you know like before it's done i guess at what point yep. do you give them chapters or do you give them a full manuscript what do you do i give them a full manuscript i do know some people who do will who will send chapters or even parts of chapters to beta readers you know and like as they're working every day they'll send new pages to people i i don't do that and i couldn't do that because of this as you called it swooping method of writing that i employ i i can't do that because I might send them something that I'll then end up just excising myself anyway. Right. By the time I get to the end of the zero, what I call the zero draft. Um, so yeah, I, I write the, that zero draft all the way through. Then I go back and that is really, really rough, complete with plot holes and logic problems and inconsistencies, you name it, terrible mm-hmm. dialogue, you know, whatever. Then I'll go back and tidy it all up so that it makes sense. Tidy up the plot aspects, you know, the logic aspects and then I'll go back a third time and tidy up the actual prose and the dialogue and character moments and all that sort of thing. And that's what I call my first draft, my, well, my rough draft, if you like. And that's what goes out to my beta readers. And of course, then it comes back and I change the whole thing again because of <laughs> the notes that they give me. And the version right. that comes out of that is what I actually call my first draft. And that's what goes off to my agent. That's smart. Terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> it, it? It is. I mean, I think that the thing I would also even, I, I write very differently than you do, but I would have to give them a full manuscript as well, just for fear of, for fear of letting them in before I've found the, the, the confidence to have clarity of vision, if that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. And like I say, and also just literally logic errors and plot holes and stuff that you will spot yourself when you go back through it, but you might yeah. not if you were sending off five pages a day for people to read. But again, as I always say, you know, if it works for you, it works for you. And everybody's process is different. So I certainly wouldn't yeah. say that anybody doing it that way is wrong, but I, I, I will. Couldn't. I will. I'll say it. I'll say it. That's madness. <laughs> I certainly couldn't work that way. So if you work out in the mornings now, what is, what's your, when you reach the end of your, you know, your sprint sessions and say the kids are due back from school, how do you, how do you break off from work to make sure that you're not still in work mode when you should be having family time? Do you have like a, I mean, is the kids coming home enough or do you have, you know, a routine that you go through? I blow out a candle. All right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, like I have a really, uh, uh, I think it's a Cal Newport thing. I, I light I light a candle when I come into my office in the morning, and at the end of the day, I blow out a candle. That's it. That's the end of my work day. And that's it. And your office is, you You have a room that's, is it separate from the rest of the house that you work in? It is separate from the rest of the house, yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, so do I. I think that's, personally, I find that really important because it means, and maybe this is because I spent 10 years working in offices and design studios and stuff, but you know, it's a place where I go to work. Yeah. That really helps me kind of get into work mindset. Work does kind of bleed into everything, but I do find 
it's just healthier if I, and I think it's better for my work too, if, um, you know, and I, and I, I tend to, I do weightlifting in the morning, but I do tend to do the bike in the early evening and then T and I do Taekwondo in the evening, evening. Um, and, uh, so sometimes blowing out the candle means going up and getting my, my workout clothes on. Um, but I, I do find that going out and like, you know, she got this stranger things Lego set for Christmas and she's been working on that and just sitting and working with her and putting together Legos and not being like, you know, Oh, I'm, you know, I really should be working on the overview of this arc of whatever, you know, like, no, my, I've done as much as I can do today. And now I'm going to be present for my kid and we're going to snap pieces of plastic together. And, (laughs) I think that's another really important part. And again, maybe this is just a factor of getting old, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I think that is for me. Yeah. It sounds like it is for you as well. The idea of being able to say, no, 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 I did the work today. I did as much work as I could and I did all the work that I needed to. So now I'm not going to feel guilty for sitting down and yeah, playing with my kids or watching a TV show, walking the dogs, even, you know, mucking around, playing a video game, completely wasting time, whatever not going to feel guilty about it because I've done the work. And if I try to go back now, it'll be terrible. But if I wait till the morning, it'll be good again. You've got to feed the machine. You know, you've got to feed the machine. You have to have a life or you have nothing to write about. You have to leave your house because you have to have people in your life because you're writing about people. Yes. You know, you have to be interested in people. You have to, you ha- I mean, you have to like people. Um, but, you know, even like you and I are both in some way of the, the Warren Ellis school. And Ellis is a famous curmudgeon, um, but he's a famous curmudgeon who actually you know, is a, is a great lover of human beings. And, uh, yeah, he's, I'm, I'm on record. I'm on that documentary about him. So calling him, he's a pussycat. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's he's nurturing and generous and, um, and I, and I would even argue both an optimist and a, and a comic, like a comedian, you know, like his, his, he doesn't get credit for how funny his work is. He is very funny. And I, and I think that is my school. I think that is my, um, where I fit in. I don't like to spend time looking for what I don't like, even though I write about anger a lot. Um, right. But that's cathartic. Yeah. And a bit of I'm angry because I think we can do better. You know, the cynic is a disappointed optimist. Right. Yeah. So yeah, same thing. All right, so so let's start to wrap this up. What do you think that you're pretty good at from a craft point of view? Um, I think I'm good at dialogue. So many people say that. It's so funny. And and so do I. That would be my answer to this question. So many people say that as an answer. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, what is it? Yeah. I don't know. 
Um, I mean, it's a lot easier for me to say what I'm bad at, but I, th- I can tell you why I think I'm good at dialogue. I think I'm good at dialogue because I come from an actor's training. And so uh, I think my characters have distinct voices. And because I spent 10 years writing English adaptations of Japanese and Korean comics. And so it was very important that I learned to write distinct voices that not only used as few words as possible so we didn't have to change balloon placement or balloon shape, but also used as short of words as possible because uh, Japanese is oriented vertically. Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) And so um, it's like I did 10 years of dialogue boot camp um, because it's all I was writing, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So, and you know, you're working in, you did a, a whole bunch of dialogue for uh, video games, right? Oh yeah. 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 I mean, that's video games. Most video games writing is just writing a dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, okay. So, so flipping that then. So what do you wish you were better at? Pacing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, I think it is been my bugaboo from day one and remains so although i have gotten better over the years um is it something you've consciously you know focused on trying to improve oh yeah yeah absolutely um and i think the reason that i'm so bad at pacing is because of the nature of monthly comics that i don't think this would be an issue if i was um doing graphic novels uh, but it, it, because I discover so much in the writing, it, I will not have left this space in my plan for something I discover in the writing. And then I have to try to figure out, is this a darling I need to let go of, or is this actually something that is really elevating the work? And now I need to make a way f- and now I have to rework everything. Right now, you have to sacrifice a different darling. Mm-hmm. And um, and I will inevitably try to get too much in. I'm, I'm, I'm having that experience. You know, like it's every time you say something about yourself to me, it, it always feels like putting my finger in mercury. You know, like this is true, and then as soon as I put my finger down, it moves. Like no, it's not. <laughs> like that's not. I can immediately think of exceptions. Um, I was going to say that I think I'm I'm fairly disciplined in my work but i will i will edit that to say i'm very focused on discipline in my work i think that's the primary it's the thing i most admire in other writers mm-hmm. and it is the thing that um you know my my two favorite writers are um uh john irving and ernest hemingway um both known for their feminist events uh, <clears throat> um, <laughs> for craft more than content, but, um, uh, but they're very, very, very different writers, but they're both exceptionally disciplined. Um, you know, Hemingway is famously spare in his language. Um, and Irving the opposite, but you'll notice with Irving that there's, even though everything is very lush, the language is very lush and very rich and, and you know, clearly influenced by his favorite writer Dickens, 
Um, there's nothing, there's also nothing extra there. Like he's everything, even though there's a lot, it's all critical to the outcome of the plot. And I find that breathtaking. Um, and so, uh, so these two writers who are kind of two ends of the spectrum, but they both, they have this one thing in common that, that is the thing that means the most to me. It is the thing I most mm. admire. Um, and that represent is represent discipline to you. Yeah. Yes. And I think that is the thing that is critical in comics and thing that is often ignored by folks, I think, starting out. Um, they don't understand that in, you know, in, in 22 pages to get someone to feel like they've had a meal, like they've gotten a full story that you've taken them on a journey and touched them in some way, it, whether intellectually or emotionally, you have, have given them some kind of experience and not just, you know, entertained their eye. Um, you, you cannot put anything on the page that does not, either tell us something we need to know about character, something we must know about character in the kind of urbing sense, or moves the plot forward. And ideally it does both of those things. Um, And if it does neither of those things, you don't have room for it. You don't, you have a, a very finite amount of space and, you know, and this is a conversation for another day, but we can talk about, there, there, there is a conversation, a big conversation to be had about, uh, uh, you know, why comics are, are monthly comics are failing right now and um, what the problem is. And, you know, one part of that is that, you know, obvious competition with, with other uh, more economical means of entertainment, but also, um, you know, relative to minimum wage comic, the price of a comic has gone up like 517% since 1961, I think. And, um, and so, you know, it, it used to be for, you know, a small portion of your income, you could get a stack of comics and, you know, you'd read them and you'd pass them around and, you know, it, and you got a, a hefty chunk of entertainment. You get a whole lot of reading. Yeah. Yeah. And now, um, you know, you, you, can finish a comic in five or 10 minutes and they're five bucks a pop, you know, yeah. it ain't rocket science. No, I, I don't blame people at all. They're like, Oh yeah, I totally get that. You know, and especially when it's cheaper to wait for the trade and most writers are writing to the trade, you know, then like, Oh yeah, I think, I think I figured it out. You guys. On, on that note then, just to round us off, what's something that you have read or watched recently where the writing specifically the writing impressed you and and why? I mean, the first thing that leaps to my mind because it was very recent is uh, the Watchmen TV series. Oh yeah. And I know that there are people who get all up in arms about whether or not there should have been a Watchmen TV series, but I loved it. So there, (laughs) ha (laughs) ha. Yeah, I thought it was exceptionally well crafted. Uh, it was smart, and I think, and this is going to get me, you know, hate mail, but get in line. Um, 
I think it exceeded its source material in a lot of, uh, rather than saying exceeded its source material, let's say this, let's say there are, there were some blind spots in its source material that it, rather than trying to dismiss, centered itself on in a way that made it, um, there, there were some, there are some weak spots because of the time when the original work was written and rather than sort of waving finger waving those away, they kind of bravely went right into them. Um, Mm. So specifically centering the series on women and people of color, right? This is, it is, which is uh, uh, an area of valid critique on Watchmen. And on most superhero comics. Well, I was going to say of their era, but frankly, of all eras, including the modern era, let's be honest. Yeah, um, absolutely. Kelly Sue, where can people find you online? Uh, I am on Instagram at Kelly Sue D and on Twitter at Kelly Sue. And um, Matt and I, Matt Fraction, my husband, have a website at milkfed m-i-k-m-i-l-k-f-e-d dot u-s milkfed us matt and milkfed criminal masterminds is the name of our company and what work of yours would you recommend that listeners check out if they haven't read anything by you before well kind of depends on what you're into but um if you want a light fun superhero fair uh avengers assemble aquaman or captain marvel um Bitch Planet is a uh, feminist satire, um, kind of mean-spirited and funny. And um, the work I'm probably most personally attached to is a little bit more of a challenging read, but it is uh, it's a really personal and important work to me. And it's a book called Pretty Deadly. And um, it's a uh, mythological cycle. And an excellent one at that. Thank you. Kelly Sue, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Anthony. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. And thank you out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes a week before they're published. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you will find all the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time. Uh, Sit with that for a minute, by the way. My son is four inches taller than me, Anthony, and he's preteen. I know, I know. know. I feel so old. (laughs) I know. I'm like, how? How?